Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and mercy be multiplied to you. How many of you here this morning grew up, and I can probably, I know this just by looking at your ages, grew up during a time when letter writing was a really important part of your life? Show of hands. Probably maybe a third, a little over a third. Um, younger kids, those of you who are in here this morning, the kids join us if you're a guest, they join us for the last Sunday of the month. And uh, you need to understand, it wasn't that long ago, we didn't have computers, we didn't have MacBooks, and we didn't have smartphones, we didn't have email, Twitter, Instagram. We had telephones, not like today's telephones. You could call someone, but it was long distance, and you paid by the minute, and so you really limited your phone calls. And so you would sit down with a piece of paper and a pen or pencil, and you would write a letter. And then you would stick, fold it up and stick it in an envelope and put a stamp on it and mail it. And depending on how far it was going, it might take two or three days to get there. It might take a week or longer if you were sending a letter to another part of the world. Very, very different from the days in which we live today. Jenny and I, before we got married, we mailed lots of letters back and forth to each other when we were during the college years. Now, what, whether you realize this or not, much of your New Testament is letters. In fact, of the 27 books of the New Testament, 21 are letters. Some of them were written to individuals, Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Some were written to entire churches, church at Rome, the church at Corinth, Philippi, Ephesus, Galatia, etc. Some were written to be circulated throughout regions of groups of believers scattered throughout different areas, and that's what First Peter is. First Peter is a letter that was meant to be circulated. It would be read to this group of believers meeting in this village or town, and then it would be, it would be couriered to the next and read there and circulated throughout the region. And so we're going to just sort of bury ourselves in First Peter over the next, I don't know, I've, I've got the sermons mapped out through Christmas, but it's going to take us even into 2018. Um, so I think it's going to be really good. Now, I've given the series of messages the title, The Born Identity. Not to be confused with the trilogy of Matt Damon movies, different spelling, B-O-U-R-N-E, but I thought the title worked because what Peter is writing in both First Peter and his, in his second letter has to do with the identity of those who have been born again and all the implications and ramifications of what it means to be a, a born-again child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God, born of God's Spirit. We won't get to this verse until next week, but he writes in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Great verse. And then in verse 23, he states, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding 
Word of God. And so we've all been born once, right? Proof of, the, proof of that is the fact that you're here this morning. You all celebrate a birthday. But the Bible says you need to be born again. You need to be born a second time. You were born physically, and that gave you physical life. You need to be born spiritually, which is the, the inauguration of spiritual life. Before you're born again, you're spiritually dead. And so Peter is writing to men and women and young people who have been born again by God's Spirit. They now have spiritual life in them. And he's going to talk about their identity as a result. I love 1 Peter. There's so much here. And I'll just warn you ahead of time, we're going to get into some pretty substantial content right out of the gates in these first two verses. But I can assure you, with God's help, this is going to be a really good series of messages and uh, a good scripture chunk for us to study. First Peter is only, it's just five chapters long. It's just 105 verses. If you read it out loud, it'll take you just 15 minutes. So, for those of you who are familiar with my approach, you might already guess what your first assignment is. Read 1 Peter through in one sitting and repeat that ten times, once a day for ten days, starting today. Okay? Read it through. Don't, don't read the footnotes. Don't read the cross-references. Read it as a letter. Try to, try to feel and see what's going on inside of Peter's head and heart his love for the people to whom he is writing. Try to feel what it would have been like to receive this letter when you are being persecuted because of your faith and you're trying to figure out what is our identity. We are these new people. We're, we're this new people called the church in first century Turkey. How do we live? What does it mean? Try to, try to get a sense. So basically, in reading it ten times through in one sitting, um, you're, you're essentially trying to get it inside of you so that as we preach through First Peter, you'll say, ah, I know those verses. Oh, yeah, I know what goes before them, and I know what comes after them. Um, so there's your assignments. And then after you've read it through maybe five times, start to make a list of key words. Find those key words that Peter uses a lot. Find those words that you need some more understanding on, and then figure out if you can identify what would you say are the key verses in First Peter, because I think there are several that are pretty instrumental. And always, brothers and sisters, when you sit down to read it, always ask the Holy Spirit to be your teacher, your encourager, your helper. Ask for His help so that you can understand and apply, and also, mostly, most importantly, just come to love God's Word. I just want us to be a church that loves God's Word because I will tell you categorically you will never, ever, ever grow in your faith apart from the Word of God. Okay? You with me? Good. Now, this morning, let me set it up for us just a bit. We'll see how far we get in the outline. I'm not making any, any promises, but um, we're going to try to move through this stuff. But there, there are a couple of chunks that get pretty, pretty deep. Uh, the author, pretty obvious, right? Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Prior to meeting Jesus, Peter and his brother Andrew were fishermen, apparently had a fairly successful fishing business. They owned a home, a house together uh, in Capernaum. Later on, they would move. They would move. Or they had a village in Bethsaida, and then they would later move to Capernaum. Um, Peter was married. His wife accompanied him on some of his missionary trips. 
Peter's personality was impulsive, which was, it served him well, and it also got him into trouble, as many of you probably know. Uh, it was a part of his strong leadership attribute that he had that characteristic. He would speak up when others would remain silent. Again, sometimes good, sometimes not so good. He was a man with many flaws, just like all of us, and he was a man saved by God's grace, just like all of us. And he became a strong, humble, loving leader in God's church. Jesus loved Peter, and Jesus knew that Peter would play a huge role in the establishment of the early church in those first decades. It says Peter, an apostle, apostle distinguished from disciples. Disciples are students of Jesus. Apostles are, are emissaries authorized representatives of Christ so that their words and their actions carry the authority of Christ. And so the apostles had the authority of Christ. The the title apostle was Christ's own. He attributed that title to the twelve. He is the one who called them apostles, one who is sent out with the authority of the one who does the sending. Peter was an apostle. When When you find his, the list of the 12 apostles in the Gospels, you will always find Peter is listed first. That's not by accident, but because he basically, over time, became seen as the unspoken leader of the band, if you will, Um, the spokesman of the 12 apostles. More than likely, as far as where and when he wrote it, more than likely he was in Rome when he wrote this epistle. Um, He refers to, she who is at Babylon sends you greetings, meaning the church at Babylon sends you greetings. Babylon was oftentimes used as sort of emblematic or or sort of a, a hidden way to refer to the city of Rome, so that if this letter were discovered by Roman authorities, the church in Rome, the people in Rome wouldn't be wouldn't be treated more harshly because of this letter. And so he referred to it as she who is at Babylon. And then as far as when it was written, probably between A.D. 60 and 68. After 64, probably because there's no reference to Nero's persecution of the Christians that happened in 64 A.D. Scholars believe that if it had been written after 64 A.D., Peter probably would have referenced that, and he doesn't reference it at all. So Peter, as a man, he's probably in his 50s or 60s. He's been giving leadership to the church for about three decades since he was probably in his early 20s. And he has grown in his faith and he's grown in his love for Jesus and he loves God's people and he's concerned for them. And that's why he writes to them the way he does. Even in this salutation, in these first two verses, he gives the recipients of the letter some solid footings for securing their identity. And friends, that is so, so important that you're not finding your identity in things that are temporary. You're not finding your, soul, your primary identity in your job. You're not finding your primary identity in your marriage. You're not finding your primary identity in being a, a parent. You're not finding your primary identity in living in West County or, or anything else that you put your name, comma, and then a descriptor. No, he wants Christians to have your identity on solid ground. 
especially having to do with your relationship with the living God. That's your identity. And so he is so good to give us this right out of the gate in terms of people who are going through severe challenges and trials and testings, that they know who they are. You need to know who you are in Christ. Now, there are five components of a Christian, Christian's born identity, your born identity, that he introduces, you might say, right here at the beginning of the epistle. Let me see if we can move through these as, as well as possible. First of all, just the fact that they are a scattered people, the scattering of God's people, he addresses that right, right from, right from the get-go. Exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so what's an exile? An exile is someone without a home. An exile is someone who has been deported or in some way forced to live in a different place than they are used to. They're not home. They love to be home. But they've been taken away from their homes or they've been forced out of their homes, forced out of their jobs. They miss their homelands. They wish they could go home. Peter writes, there are Christians who have been scattered throughout the Mediterranean region at this point in time, scattered because of their faith, scattered because of their faith in Jesus, and they are forced to live in lands and in cultures not their own. The map up on the screen gives you an idea. We're talking about essentially modern-day Turkey. Pontus, up in the far north, uh, Jews from there had been in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Pontus is referred to during the, on the day of Pentecost. Galatia, Central Asia Minor, towns of Derbe and Lystra and Iconium, towns that Paul ministered to, traveled through. Cappadocia, Eastern Asia Minor. Uh, it's also mentioned in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Asia, uh, references mostly to Western Asia, as you see there on the, on the sea. Asia is mentioned 12 times in the book of Acts. That's what he's talking about because Paul did a lot of travel in that area. And then Bithynia, uh, northwest Asia Minor, up near Con Constantinople of today would be, uh, Istanbul of today would be in, in ancient Bithynia. And so this letter was intended to be circulated through that entire region. Okay? Exiles, some of, your word, some of your Bibles use the word aliens. So again, it's the idea of people... Uh, who are temporary residents, people who are refugees. We live in a time when there are a lot of refugees in the world, right? Millions of refugees, people without a home, people on the move, aliens and strangers in foreign lands. The reality for God's people is that we are aliens, we are exiles, we are strangers and sojourners in this world as a result of our allegiance to Jesus as a result of our identity in Christ. Regardless of whether you feel stable in your home and stable in your job, and there's no chance that anything's going to happen to where we're all going to be scattered out of St. Louis because of some forced deportation, it's probably not going to happen. But we're supposed to have the mind and the heart of an alien, knowing that this is not our homeland. This is not our home. This world, we are in it, but we are not of it. And so God scatters his people. The dispersion, actually several dispersions in, in the scriptures, but this one in particular was, was intentionally by God for his purposes to get the salt and the light scattered throughout the region. 
God has seen fit to scatter his people throughout history, all across, even in one city, even in one greater metropolitan area. We all don't live in Kirkwood. We all don't live in Chesterfield. We all don't live in Baldwin or Maryland Heights or Fenton. God scatters us. I believe that's according to his purpose. He wants the salt and the light of his people's lives and the gospel to be spread throughout cities and regions. But again, just to reemphasize, we, for here we have, Hebrews 13 says, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's what makes you a, a sojourner. No matter where you live, we seek the city that's to come. We seek what's permanent. We seek what's eternal. Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first piece of identity that he touches on. Yeah, I'm writing to exiles. And in every century after this one, I will be writing to exiles. Secondly, he deals with the sovereign election and foreknowledge of the Father. The sovereign election and foreknowledge of God the Father. He says, elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And here's where we get into some pretty significant content. Think about this. If Peter had only referred to them as exiles and had left it at that, it would have been pretty discouraging. Wouldn't you agree? He would have been telling them something that they already knew, something that caused them considerable discomfort and unrest. Yeah, we know we're exiles. People who are without a home. We know that we've been relocated against our will. We know that we are strangers and sojourners in unfamiliar lands. But Peter, we, we want and need stability for our lives, so tell us something more. He says, okay, let me tell you this. You are elect exiles. He very purposefully, wisely, and lovingly precedes the noun exiles with the adjective elect. And with that, we're introduced right at the beginning of his epistle with an important biblical doctrine. See, to elect means to select or to choose. The elect of God are the objects of God's choosing, subjects of God's sovereign, gracious, eternal, loving choice to be his people in and through faith in Jesus Christ. God's choice in electing is an expression of his free, sovereign grace. Election is always an expression of God's grace. He didn't have to elect anybody, but he chose to. He didn't have to save anybody, but he has. You see, friends, in the Old Testament, God is continually seen choosing and calling certain people to himself for his purposes. Think with me for a couple of minutes. He chose Noah to build the ark. He chose the reluctant, foot-dragging, heels-dug-into-the-ground Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. He chose Abram to become the father of a brand-new people, the Hebrews. After choosing Abraham, he chose deceptive and cunning Jacob over Esau. We find God choosing one and rejecting another. God chose David and rejected all of David's older brothers. God said to the prophet Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
Before you were born, I consecrated you. Consecrate means to set apart for my purposes. As for the Jews, God's chosen people, they weren't a people before God made them a people. They didn't exist. Deuteronomy 7, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. One of my favorite activities when we are up north is to go rock hunting up at Point Betsy, um, which is about 20 miles north of our hometown. And on a calm day, you understand, those of you who don't know Lake Michigan and Michigan, the West Coast, it's all sand. The coastline of Western Michigan is virtually all sand, except for this one major stretch where you have, I don't know, half mile, mile, mile and a half of rock. Beautiful, beautiful rocks. All shapes, all sizes, all colors. A lot of people go, go in there looking for Petoskey stones. I remember a year or so ago I passed around the Petoskey stone for you all to see. It's unique only to that part of Michigan. But I go up there looking for rock, and I take three five-gallon buckets along with lots of other rock hunters up there, and you fill up your buckets with all these rocks. And I do it for my gardens and for the stream that runs behind our cottage. And it's just fun. We have full-face snorkel masks. I think maybe that picture was up on the screen earlier. Now understand, I'm picking some rocks and I'm rejecting others. You might say, well, Gary, that hardly seems fair. I mean, if you really loved all the rocks, you would choose all of them. No, I choose to set my eyes... I choose to set my affection on some of the rocks for certain purposes. Now understand, all the rocks bring God glory. Even the ones that aren't set apart and placed into buckets, the ones that get left sitting on the beach, the ones that are left under the water, they bring glory to their creator, whether they know it or not. See, in a way beyond our ability to comprehend all people will ultimately bring God glory. Those who are chosen and those who are saved and those who reject the gospel and turn away out of unbelief because there's a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You say, well, Gary, what about in the New Testament? Okay, in the New Testament, Jesus chose the 12 when there were obviously hundreds of other young men he could have chosen. And he only chose 12. And then he, later on he chose a murderous persecutor of Christians named Saul who turned into the Apostle Paul. And as for Christians in general, Peter is telling us here, and he'll repeat it again, that God sovereignly sets his love on those whom he calls to himself. We're going to see this in chapter 2 where he writes, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, and now you are the people of God. And all, the only thing you can say to that, friends, is praise God. Now the word Peter uses to capture all of this is the word foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of the Father. 
let me clarify, let me, let me explain this. Foreknowledge does not mean supernatural knowledge. God being able to see and know all that's going to happen. No, that's omniscience. That's the omniscience of God. Nor does foreknowledge mean foresight, with God being able to look out across the ages and see who would believe and who would not believe, and so he set out his love on those that he could see would one day believe. No, that would be God rewarding some with salvation because they were smart enough or wise enough or astute enough to believe. No, foreknowledge is God's eternal, predetermined, sovereign, gracious, loving, intentional choice to know those upon whom he sets his divine love in a very, very special way and calls them to himself. I told you. I warned you, didn't I? We were going to be getting to some pretty meaty stuff right out of the gate. Look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, by the way, is probably the greatest dissertation, one of the greatest dissertations you have in all of the Bible on this aspect of God's election. Paul writes in Romans 9, in order that God's, this is a rather lengthy piece, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you. He's one of the rocks. He's one of the rocks. Going to bring God glory. Doesn't know it, but he is. That my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he will. He hardened the Pharaoh's heart for his own glory. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And this is where Paul basically says, you can only go so far in arguing with God. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Praise God. Friends, as it is virtually impossible for us to comprehend how all of this works, and we're obviously going to read the Bible with certain lenses and filters. I'm just saying we need to read Scripture and allow Scripture to read itself to us and not try to turn it and twist it into something that it's not. 
This is hard for us to take our puny little finite minds and comprehend it at all. And understand also, the Bible teaches clearly man's responsibility. You must receive and believe in Jesus. And if you reject him, you'll reap the consequences. But if you receive him, if you believe in him, your receiving and believing has been made possible because, because of God's electing love. I realize that that's, this is a doctrine. These are teachings that have caused disagreement and, and division in God's church over the centuries, which I find to be so unfortunate because you need to understand when Paul and Peter and the early church when they wrote these things and when they read these things, they gloried in these things. They loved these truths. They found, they found security in these truths. They found great comfort. They boasted of God's saving, gracious, sovereign, electing love. The third element of their identity comes from the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The sanctifying work of the Spirit. Verse 2, in the sanctification of the Spirit... And by the way, notice how Peter lays out in his salutation the Trinity. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. That's intentional on Peter's part. And so basically he's saying all three members of the triune Godhead play a key role in your salvation. You're saved because of the foreknowledge of God the Father. You're saved because of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You're saved because of the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus. Now, so what, is the, what does the Spirit do? And how should this affect your identity? Knowing that it is the sanctification of the Spirit that is at work in your life. What does that mean, Gary? Well, the sanctification of the Spirit encompasses all that the Holy Spirit does in taking people who are spiritually dead and making them spiritually alive, taking people who are far from God and bringing them near to God, taking people who are spiritually blind and causing them to see, giving people spiritual birth. You are born again of the Spirit, John says. You see, it's the role of the Holy Spirit to fulfill all that the Father has predetermined and planned from before the foundation of the world. It's the Holy Spirit who, who sets us apart unto God, apart from sin, apart unto God. It's the Holy Spirit who replaces unbelief with faith, rebellion with repentance, a void of spiritual life with the reality of spiritual birth, alienation with adoption. All of that's the sanctification of the Spirit in your life. Let me just say it very simply. If today you believe in Jesus Christ, it is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. If you behold wonderful truths out of the Bible, it is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. If you cry out to God as your Abba Father, it is the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you love Jesus, if you're amazed at your salvation, if you look forward to the day when you will get to see the Lord face to face, all of that and more is because of the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God in your life. Therefore, friends, praise Him. Praise Him. You'd be 
dead. You'd be, you, there would be nothing going on in your heart or, he, or your head apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. You would have no desire to be here on Sunday morning. You'd have no desire to, to follow a team of people leading us in worship. It wouldn't be there. You say, now I understand why some of my best friends and family members have no desire for these things. Yeah. And so what do you do? You pray. You pray for the power of God's Spirit to be at work in their lives just as He was in yours. Element number four, submission to Christ as Lord. It says, verse 2, for obedience to Jesus Christ. So this is the outcome. This is the result. Think with me. What begins with the foreknowledge of God the Father, eternity past, and is implemented by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, is meant to result in obedience to Christ. That's the end game. All of it coming back to glorify the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. Again, in chapter 16, the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. And so the very first step of obedience to Christ in a believer's life is faith in Christ. That's the obedience of faith. I obey God by believing in His one and only Son. I obey God by believing that I'm a sinner who needs to be saved. I obey God by believing that I can only be saved by His grace. I obey God by believing and agreeing with His assessment. I obey God by embracing His Son, whom He dearly loves, Jesus. And then my obedience of faith is to result in practical obedience Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, in the various areas of my life. I want to obey Him as a husband. I want to obey Him as a dad. I want to obey Him with my finances. I want to obey Him when I go to work. Because God the Father knew me before the foundation of the world. The Holy Spirit has been working in me long before I even knew He was working in me, when I finally came to Christ at the age of 18. And now as a 64-year-old man, my desire is to obey Jesus. Because, friends, the day is coming when, as I said before, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is what? Lord. To what? The glory of God. Lastly, the security of our salvation, and then we're done. He says, for sprinkling with his blood. And you say, well, why did he stick that? He already talked about obedience to Christ. He says, and for sprinkling with his blood. I think this is a reference to that which makes your salvation secure. Your salvation was purchased not with that which perishes, silver or gold or anything that perishes. Your salvation was purchased with the precious blood of Christ. And so you've been sprinkled, meaning that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross where He shed His blood for the remission of your sins, where He gave His life to give you eternal life, that's what makes you secure. Don't look to your perfect obedience to make you secure. Don't make to your faithful church attendance to make you secure. 
You look to the blood of Jesus to make you secure. You may be familiar with the first part of Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it goes on, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption, the purchase price, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, God the Father, put forward as a propitiation, how? By His blood to be received by faith. He says the same thing in Ephesians 2. And so it is the atoning sacrifice of Christ that secures your salvation on those days when you don't feel very secure. So there's your born identity for those of you who are in Christ by faith. Your elect exiles strangers and sojourners in this world. You have been foreknown by God the Father from before the foundation of the world. You are being sanctified by God the Spirit. You have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus the Son for obedience to Christ as Lord. Amen? I gave you a lot, didn't I? That's the glory of the Word of God. God's Word is just so rich. So much there. What's your assignment? Read it ten times. Okay. Pray with me, please. Our great and gracious Lord and God, all glory is due to you. You are worthy. There is no God but the one true God. We marvel at the gospel. We marvel that we, we would be allowed and enabled to know the God of the universe, the one who created it all, the one who conceived us in the womb, the one who gave us life, the one who gives us breath, minute by minute, second by second, that we could know you because we have been known by you, that we could love you because we are loved by you. Praise you. Praise you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you for knowing us. Praise you, Spirit of God, for your great and powerful work to take people who are dead and make us alive. Take people who are blind and allow us to see. To take people who did not love God and now we love you. Lord Jesus, we've never seen you, but we love you. We've never seen you, but we believe in you. Thank you, Spirit of God, for allowing that to be true. And Lord Jesus, we worship you. the risen Christ, you who gave your life that we might have life. Such a Savior. And we would truly, Lord, pray for our friends, family, relatives, 
people that we know who need to know Jesus. For the love of Christ to flow through us to them. That you would open their eyes. Spirit of God, lest you open their eyes, they will not see. And so now we thank you for the bread and the cup, all that they mean to us. They remind us every time we hold them and partake of them, they remind us of a Savior. Thank you for giving your life. Thank you for shedding your blood. We pray in Christ's name. God's people agreed by saying...